Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different on the show. From time to time, I make guest appearances on another outstanding radio program broadcast out of West Virginia with a legendary radio host there named Howard Monroe. We have some fascinating conversations about politics and what's going on in government and the news. We thought we would bring some of our recent ones to our WKXL and podcast listeners. So here's a recent discussion we had about domestic terrorism and right-wing extremist groups, which former President Trump's own FBI identified as the most persistent and dangerous threat facing America. But right now I want to shift gears. I want to shift completely. Uh, get into some serious stuff this morning. This is really serious stuff. Uh, I've invited Matt Robeson to join us. Matt is a writer, political analyst. He tends to focus on, I call it the big picture stuff. That's why I hit his podcast, Behind the Politics and uh, Beyond Politics, and uh, the Great Ideas podcast and so on. Um, he, he tends to do the deep dive into some of the big picture stories. So that's why I invited him on today to talk about a, uh, an issue that I know he tackled recently, which is... Domestic terrorism and white supremacy. Matt, first of all, good morning. Welcome to the show, as always. Howard, great to be with you. I hear it's pretty darn hot there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not so bad now that I know how to turn the air conditioner on. Just a little switch. He just just flipped the switch, I guess. You know, nobody told me. I don't know. Uh, Matt. The Department of Homeland Security is really making this a big deal. The White House feels this is a big deal. Uh, The intelligence communities have said that this is a big deal. Um, You get a lot of feedback when you talk about this. But domestic terrorism, domestic terrorism, is seen by many to be our biggest concern in this country. And a huge percentage of that is fueled by white supremacy, right? That's. 100% 100% right, and I agree with you. There's no way to even talk about this issue without it getting dragged one way or the other into people's preconceived notions and politics, and they glom all kinds of things onto this discussion. So what I tried to do in this recent episode of Great Ideas, which is really it's a policy show. It's just ideas for making America a little bit better based on the idea that we love America and we've got some issues, we've got some challenges, but if we all work together, you know, we have a, a, an unending fountain of great ideas to fix our challenges. So I wanted to take a look at this issue of domestic terrorism and white supremacist-inspired violence. And so here's, just, here's the facts on it. No, no politics from either side. In October of 2020, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, under Donald Trump, I cannot emphasize this enough, this is Donald Trump's Department of Homeland, I mean, it's all of ours, we're all Americans, but he is the president. These are the people that he appointed in the leadership. It said in its annual threat assessment that racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists particularly white supremacist extremists, are the most persistent and lethal threat here in America. So I had an expert on combating domestic terrorism onto my show, and that's, that's really the jumping-off point. It was not a political discussion. This is an expert who created a report on behalf of a left-wing think tank. 
and a Republican, well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call the McCain Center a right wing, but certainly you're talking conservative to liberal here. And um, what ensued online was, was pure chaos. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about causes for a second, then talk about solutions. Um, and if not causes, at least a timeline. It seems to me that the issue of domestic terrorism, specifically white supremacy, has become a much more certainly acceptable to talk about topic, but it seems to me that people who used to hide their feelings about this have stopped hiding their feelings as well. I mean, white supremacy is right out there in the open anymore. Yeah, there's clearly a long fraught history of this topic in america and again i want to at least for like two minutes we can try and stay away from you know the fraught politics of it but obviously going all the way back to post-civil war the creation of the ku klux klan there was a period where obviously the embrace of white supremacy and the embrace of violence as a as a means of enforcing white supremacy was very open in this country um there are thousands of documented lynchings especially in the american south in the early part of the 20th century as we got to the middle part of the 20th century there was a concerted campaign by people who did not embrace that ideology to try to clamp down on it and the ku klux klan was largely brushed back by a combination of they got themselves into some tax trouble um there was a campaign of what was called frown power which was to try and enforce hey this is not socially acceptable we are against this folks um and it was it was largely effective in the sense that as you as you suggest howard a lot of this kind of went to ground it it, it got pushed under the surface it was not so apparent in the ensuing decades. Not that violence ever went away, but um, as it certainly would not have been the top threat identified by, and again, I'm not making this stuff up, Christopher Wray, the Donald Trump-appointed head of the FBI, said in congressional testimony that that's what he's most concerned about, is that these groups, these right-wing militia groups, often white supremacist groups. And so when you got to the mid-90s, what you saw was with the Oklahoma City bombing that there were these networks that, you know, and frequently Simon Clark, the guest on The Great Ideas Show, said frequently it was some guy and his cousin, which is literally what happened with Tim McVeigh, if you <laughs> literally, literally back to 1995. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so there was, again, there was some of this stuff. But what really, what really took off was after the election of Barack Obama, there was pushback. There was there was a an upswell of activity on the part of these kinds of groups and they began to grow in influence and activity and this what it culminated in was the center for strategic and international studies which is a highly respected washington think tank completely divorced from politics no politics with them they analyzed 893 terrorist plots and attacks in the u.s over the last quarter century they found that far-right terrorism had significantly outpaced any kind of terrorism violence from far-left groups or the notorious overseas groups that we always think about when we think about terrorism isis al-qaeda and in fact 
In 2019, two-thirds of the attacks and plots in the U.S., and over 90% in the first six months of 2020, were fomented by these right-wing extremist groups. And again, they don't always hide their agenda anymore. When I first started in this business a very long time ago, um, I remember one of the first inter- one of the first controversial interviews I did was a uh, a fellow from I believe he was in Jefferson County, Ohio, running for the state legislature, and he was a member of the KKK, but he was not really open about it. But people knew that, so I had him on my show, and I remember I began the interview by saying. Um, Sometimes things live in the dark, but occasionally they slither out from under their rock and come out into the public, and one of them has slithered out and done so today in front of me. Because it was something that you didn't know about. People didn't want to flaunt this position they had about white supremacy. But these days, I mean, we've come a long way, baby, and these days, I mean, look at Charlottesville. Look at uh, look at uh, maybe look at the insurrection at the Capitol, for that matter, and you see groups like the Proud Boys and others that are just they're happy to stand up and proclaim their white supremacy. Yeah, it's it, it is really depressing and disconcerting, and you know I'll get to the to the uh, to the chaos in a second, but I mean I agree a hundred percent that the there was sort of a it was on full display in the Charlottesville incident and Donald Trump and the very fine people on both sides comment. But long before that, there was a recognition on the part of domestic Nazi groups, the publishers of the Daily Stormer, which, believe it or not, that's what the uh, the, 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 not, the domestic Nazi group, that's what they call their newsletter, um, sounds delightful. Um, you know, th- these folks who are trying to create a breakaway white ethnostate, Richard Spencer, the name of the guy who, who headed them up, they were on the record, you can Google this stuff, that they found great aid and comfort and encouragement from the candidacy of Donald Trump. And in fact, there's a wild, if you, if you want to talk about a, a, a shocking search on YouTube, the moment when Donald Trump's election was announced in 2016, there was actually a camera on in the room where this group under Richard Spencer had gathered. And the reaction of the people in the room was to give the Nazi salute. They're screaming, see Kyle, and looking at the camera and looking at Donald Trump. And later, Spencer kind of explained this away as, oh, they were overtaken by exuberance. Look, folks, if the way you celebrate something that you, that you like is to stand up and give the Nazi salute, it is time to reexamine your life. So yeah, I'll accept, a, a I'll accept lot that of they this, were overcome with. I'll accept they were overcome with exuberance, but when you're overcome yeah. with exuberance, what you're really thinking tends to come out. Well, and and then, you know, just to kind of connect the dot over to the point you're making about how people are not hiding anymore about this stuff, right? So I took a, a fairly innocuous clip from The Great Idea Show, my interview with Simon Clark. Again, he is... He is an expert on domestic terrorism. The clip that I took was me uh, for about 30 seconds describing some of the statistics that I just shared with your listeners and uh, Simon Clark describing some of the means in the report that he suggested for, you know, taking on these groups. It's, it's not like, you know, the most challenging material to put online. 
I post it on Facebook. I know that the Watchdog Network does that. A lot of people interact with their radio content online. Um, you know, my show is broadcast on WKXL in New Hampshire. And lo and behold, out of the woodwork comes all kinds of stuff. And it's pretty crazy. It took less than a day for someone to post a – I mean, I don't even know where this comes from. This is out of left field. But, you know, if someone posts a, an anti-Semitic, it's like it, it's, it's an image of a Jewish person cackling. And, you know, it's like the, a classic trope gets posted on this on the page. And then all these comments come out of the woodwork. And, you know, the, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of nutty stuff. And it seems like what has happened is that in our, in our society on the right, people have kind of conflated and mushed together support for Donald Trump, refusal to accept that there was an insurrection on January 6th, and a, a complete denial of the fact that extremist groups on the right are a threat. And all of this is a mishmash of denialism and anger and pushback, and it's really weird. And when you when you talk about any of this stuff online, that's the response you get. Who was it just uh, last week or two weeks ago said that the, the insurrectionists, why they were just like tourists? Oh, yes. Like tourists. I remember when just... I worked on Capitol Hill that all of the tourists would scale the walls um, <laughs> on their way in. It was uh, it was weird. I mean, most of them were spiders. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Wrapping up a conversation with our friend Matt Robeson, um, who I talk, I call my big picture political analyst, because we talk about some of the, the, the bigger stories here, the bigger picture stories. And we're talking about domestic terrorism and white supremacy, and uh, Matt has done uh, a Great Ideas podcast on this subject. We've identified the problem, looked at the timeline, uh, Matt, but and what do we do about it? I mean, it, it's a growing concern in our country, and biggest concern that – many in our government feel we have, what do we do? Well, great question. I don't think that, as with most complicated problems, I don't think that there's a silver bullet solution. The expert who I interviewed on the Great Ideas podcast, which people can check out for themselves if they, if they find the topic interesting, the expert Simon Clark has produced a whole report, and again, it's a collaboration of a more conservative institution, a more liberal institution. They took politics off the board and they tried to come up with some practical ideas. They came up with five broad categories of ideas, and I'll rattle them off for you. One is to take advantage of the executive branch. There's a lot that the executive branch under the president can do um, in terms of the way agencies react to these kinds of domestic terrorist threats and and just to simply focus on them to the appropriate amount um one of the things that simon points out is that you know we have police departments who put 16 times more resources into overseas terrorist threats than domestic terrorist threats where the real threat if you look at the data is far more likely coming from domestic terrorists the second we have to understand the scope of the problem. There is no good data on it. We, we just don't know how big a problem we're dealing with. We get into this more in the show. Um, a third is to, to actually protect communities and prosecute crimes. We don't do an awful lot of – we don't necessarily need a lot of new laws. I'm going to sound like a conservative here. I mean, there are 52 federal terrorism laws available right, right now today to address – 
domestic acts of political violence. Um, it's just that only about 12% of state and local law enforcement agencies actually report this kind of uh, crime occurring in their jurisdictions, and it's because they don't they don't track it very well and they don't go after it very well. Um, the fourth thing is we have a big problem with infiltration of these militia groups into the military and law enforcement communities. This has been well documented. The Department of Defense is actually undertaking a really strong initiative to try and crack down on this kind of thing. But um, it's been well reported, deeply reported, that we have a we have a particular problem, um, especially among law enforcement. And so that's something we need to we need to address. And finally, there's a big lesson of taking on Al Qaeda over the last 20 years, which is we have to use technology to interrupt their financial online, their, their financial networks and their recruiting networks. And we've developed a lot of tools in fighting overseas terrorists to do that. And we can apply those tools domestically. So those are the ideas he came up with. But I'm going to lob one other at you, which is right. I think it's really important in all of this to I think people should listen to your show. And I'm not I'm not kidding. I think people should listen to your show. And I think people should listen to Beyond Politics and Great Ideas. I think we should we should empower people on the right and the left who want to have reasoned, intelligent thoughtful conversations about political topics so that people don't go running to the extreme crazy stuff that they can find. There's plenty of crazy content online, but I think you do a show that that's about intelligent conversation. I try and do the same thing. And I think we want to engage with people who disagree with us politically so that there's a, there's a place where you can go for wholesome, real thoughtful content and not just, you know, the dark corners of the Internet. For folks who want to follow up on your uh, interview on this subject or quite a few others, you've had some really good stuff up lately on Beyond Politics and um, great ideas. Uh, you've talked about child care and you've talked about uh, content uh, mergers uh, with AT&T and all those kind of things. You've talked about the Capitol insurrection. Uh, some good stuff. People that want to follow it uh, can check you out. Uh, the podcasts are on uh, Apple Podcasts or basically any place where you can find podcasts, you will find them. You'll see Matt online, on Twitter, uh, if you'd like to check him out there. And, Matt, uh, we'll talk again probably soon. There's just a lot of stuff I want to get into with you, and uh, we'll delve into some more subjects as the time goes by. Welcome back to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today we're bringing you some conversations that I recently had with a legendary radio host out of West Virginia named Howard Monroe. In my most recent appearance this week as a guest on his show, we talked about the announcement from Senator Joe Manchin that he would oppose the Democrats' big democracy reform bill, the For the People Act, and also that he would continue to oppose reforming the filibuster, meaning that that whole initiative is all but dead. As a West Virginia-based radio host, Howard knows Joe Manchin personally and knows his politics maybe better than anyone. So we had a really interesting conversation about that. And then we got into the whole Fauci lied controversy that really isn't that controversial, the COVID lab leak theory, and the way misinformation and conspiracy theories are handled by the media in general. Hope you enjoy that conversation. Hey, how are you? Good. You're starting to smoke. What's it like where you are? Did you it, it's 
Yeah, it's hotter than Hades, honestly. Um, you know, it's, uh, the, the summer is hit with a vengeance, and uh, like all the cool things that when I interview on the podcast is what did what did Trump call Jeff Bush low energy? I think people are feeling low energy. When it gets this hot, it's hard to get things to be energized and excited. I think it's a mixture of your outdoors and the energy of the outside. The playground. It's not our state of the playground we go to in the sun that's being played on the tennis. The kids can sit there and get running around. I don't know how they do that. How long does it take around a belly with a pile of kids to say, I'm going to run around? Yeah, that's what you've been noticing. What are you hearing? What are you talking about? Your talk show? What kind of reflections are you getting about the latest in Joe Manchin? He says he's not going to vote for the people. He's not going to vote for for the people at reaffirms that he will not vote for the next filibuster. Getting a lot of press there. You guys talking about that? You know, we are definitely talking about it. I mean, it's interesting. I host a panel discussion show where we actually try and have a constructive conversation among Republicans and Democrats. Um, it, it, it usually goes pretty well. I don't think people are as interested in constructive conversation as they claim to be. And we talked about this yesterday. And what was really obvious to me is that even Republicans who Democrats can talk to and, and have meaningful exchanges with have really bought into the idea that the For the People Act is the devil, that, <laughs> you know, they say, well, it's going to federalize elections. Actually, the Constitution is what says that the federal government has jurisdiction over federal elections. There's nothing new about that. In fact, it was, it, it, it was part of the Voting Rights Act originally that gave the federal government oversight over elections. Why? Because one party, it was the Democrats at the time, were trying to duke all the rules in order to make sure that black people couldn't vote. And that was for political reasons, and now the same thing is happening 40, 50 years later. And that's the whole point of what the Democrats are trying to do with the For the People Act. I get where Senator Manchin is coming from. I don't think that it, 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 it's a great idea to try and push him off the ledge. We've seen that movie before. We saw it in 2001 with Vermont Senator Jim Jeffords, who got enough pressure from the Republican Party to toe the line that he eventually said, you know what, I'm taking my ball, I'm going home, and he became an independent, and he started costing the Democrats, and the balance of power in the Senate turned over to the Democrats. I don't think we want a situation like that if you're a Democrat uh, with Senator Manchin. So I get it, but... Yeah, clearly the Democrats are going to have to regroup and rethink here and probably focus on renewing the Voting Rights Act. That's probably their best shot at this point, although that also remains a long shot. Yeah, and Ambassador on the Senate page, he says he, he would be in support of that. It seems to me he feels it's bipartisan. I think there's only one Republican to sign on to it right now, but somehow he sees that as a bipartisan thing as opposed to the for the people act. I was on with uh, Michael Harrison once again when we were in Publishing Finders magazine yesterday. He's making news reporting programs. And uh, I was pointing out, you know, one thing about Senator Manchin, which I think people outside the area have to understand, is 
when he was governor, when Joe Manchin was governor, his hallmark was pulling people into a room, essentially the door and saying, we're not getting out of here, we're not going to be outside. And that's the way he worked when he was governor. And it worked, but that was 15 years ago. Times have changed, and have changed a lot. I, I don't know if the Manchin has got his head around the fact that the times have changed. That system just doesn't work. I think he truly believes in bipartisanship, nonpartisanship, and the virtue of the I'm not sure how findable that is in this day and age. I agree, although I also think, and look, I, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to dunk on my friends who still work in Congress. I've interviewed a number of them, you know, including. Uh, on the Beyond Politics podcast, we, we interviewed the author of the For the People Act, the, the congressman, he's a Maryland congressman, who, who wrote the darn bill. And, you know, we, we get where these folks are coming from. We believe in, in, in the bulk of the bill on, the, on that show. But I will say that Democrats have not done themselves a ton of favors. I know that voting is a very complicated topic. There's a lot that they wanted to do. But what they sort of did here is they, they were a little bit starved being out of power for so many years, not having the majority in at least one chamber of Congress for so many years. And so when they showed up for the all-you-can-eat buffet, they took everything that was available and they put it all on their plate, kind of like, Pluto uh, from Animal House. And that's made for a big, fat target for Republicans to attack. If you break down what is in the bill, piece by piece, what you find is Americans in polling strongly support all the pieces. But when you put the whole package together, it's very easy to demagogue. It's very easy to criticize. And, you know, I, I, I would just the final thing I'll say on this is that I would draw a, a direct connection between this issue and the other big things going on in the news. Like, for example, the, the lab leak theory, the, the Fauci lies thing. What you see over and over again is that people, Democrats essentially, Democrats essentially, have this tendency to give big, long, complicated explanations, big, long, complicated solutions, and in politics, the simpler explanation is usually the one that wins, and that's what we're seeing here. I would agree completely with the last thing, and I think I can't agree with it, because that last thing is something that's bothered me for years. Democrats just don't understand. The Republican Party, all across the country, over the last couple of decades, has really learned resonate simply and easily. Now, they'll know that this is complicated when you look across the country and some of these election reform bills, like the George Custer they're, they're complicated bills with a whole lot of moving parts, but they're able to make it digestible. And that's something that they're able to do. I would agree that Democrats have not done a very good job of that, which then makes us seem too wonky and Let's, 
let's shift gears here to the next question. I'm going to ask you about Matt Robeson here. Uh, Matt, let's, let's shift gears to something you mentioned, though, which is this whole uh, COVID-19 leak from the Wuhan lab. That's a story that got some traction at the very beginning of COVID. Wuhan shot down, and it's begun to slowly resurface a little bit as the Biden wants to COVID look at it and sort of report it. Probably gets a jump off the chip point of it. Yeah, it was a great episode. I, I it, we, we were we were in the Beyond Politics uh, podcast. I urge people to check it out. To my knowledge, Donald D. McNeil Jr. was the lead COVID reporter for the New York Times for most of 2020. You probably your listeners probably heard him if you listen to the Daily, the New York Times podcast, or read his coverage. His stories were averaging seven million readers that they could track online per story. He is one of the most thoughtful, clear reporters, thinkers on explaining the science of what is going on with COVID. And so we asked him. We, we, we pulled him onto the show. And to my knowledge, this is his first audio appearance, appearance that he's done since he left the New York Times. And on May 17th, he wrote an article on Medium, which you can look up. It's called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Lab Theory. And he details how he, yeah, he likes the movie Dr. Strange Love. That's, that's where he got it from. It's one of my personal favorites. And he details his own process of looking at this question of where COVID came from. And he takes you inside the newsroom, and, that, and that's what we did in this interview. I asked him to go behind the scenes to explain what happened, what was going on at the New York Times, what were what was he thinking, what were his editors thinking, and look, at the end of the day, what happened with this was science, normal, regular science. He and other members of the media who were looking at this were doing their level best, and so were scientists, to try to figure out where COVID came from. And the evidence that was available through the first half of 2020 strongly, strongly pointed at the idea that it probably came from nature, from an animal, a virus that incubated, that developed and evolved in an animal, and at some point crossed over to humans. And so there's been this kind of crazy right-wing pushback to the idea now that scientists think, you know what, it's a little bit more possible. We're, we're beginning to think that there is some evidence that it could have come from a lab in Wuhan, China. Now the right-wing media and commentators are going crazy and saying, oh, see, Tom Cotton was right all along. Donald Trump was right all along. That's not what happened. What happens in science is you take the best available evidence, you say this is what the evidence shows, you say here's what we don't know, and then new evidence emerges, new facts emerge, you study things, you learn things. That's what happened here. And the final thing I'll say, and this 
deal, which again, I, I think is a great listen. Uh, I commend it to all your listeners. Is he was working awfully hard on this. He actually proposed a story, a deep dive story on why, exactly why scientists thought COVID came from an animal, not from a lab. And it was his editors who stopped it. So this whole idea that somehow there's this conspiracy among the left-wing media to push this storyline about where COVID came from and to deny the lab leak hypothesis, it was the opposite. That's not at all what happened with the New York Times. So, yeah, I mean, this has been, that and the Fauci Live episode has been, you know, again, like we were saying before, it, it's so much easier to make vague charges, to, to kind of throw random chaff out into the wind, and to, to, to muddy the waters in people's minds. It's a lot harder to give deep, careful explanations of what actually happened, and that's why there's some controversy. You, you, you put out something which I keep trying to remind folks of. It's lost in the political world. Science is a process. We begin with a theory or a hypothesis, we test it, and, and we give you. I did a speech decades ago about journalism, the same thing. And I said, all we can do as journalists is give you the information we have at any given point in time. And tomorrow we may have more information. And the story that we report in tomorrow's newspaper may be different than the story we report today because we get the information. Science is like that, very much the case. Fauci, in particular, has been the subject of ridicule and criticism really since COVID began because he has, as new information has become available, he has adjusted some of the things he has said. And we hear then from particularly Republicans, well, he's, he's lied before. Now look what he's doing here. No, he's got new information. As we get new information, we reassess and he offers different, different suggestions. And that's been the case really with a lot of this whole COVID thing. Is that, that, that it was, a, I think we forget that it was called the Noble Coronavirus when it first came out. It's brand new. We were, we were all learning together, scientists were learning together. And as you learn, you adapt. And I think Fauci's particular is the subject of a lot of criticism because it's time went by. He has adapted. Look, I'm married to my, my, my wife's a physician. And so just, just to break down the kind of this whole Fauci lied hogwash for a moment, there, there are three main things that Fox News and, and Laura Ingram and that kind of media elements have been saying in the last week or two. Um, let's, just, let's just take one of them. Let's, let's take masks for a second. They point to this email that uh, it was an exchange with Fauci, and he said, well, you know, we, we don't know. This is, this is an email from February 5th, 2020. Right, so just, just to put it in context, how early on this is. You know, we've known about COVID for about a month that point. And so, when the former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Sylvia Burwell is her name, emailed a question about masks, he said to her, look, we, what we think is that masks are good for infected people. 
reflected from their mouth from reaching you. We don't think they provide that much protection for people who are not infected because it, it's not going to prevent the droplets, the, 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 micro, the, the, the microscopic virus particles from penetrating the mask and getting into your airways and getting infected. Well, like I, like I said, my wife's a doctor, and she had to provide medical guidance to people throughout, and especially during this time frame. I clearly remember in around this time frame us having the conversation about masks and asking her, hey, we're still going to the grocery store. Should we be wearing masks? And she said, look, the exact same thing that, that Dr. Fauci said. Here's, here's what we know. We think that it doesn't protect people that much. Now, look, we also know that behind the scenes, Dr. Fauci was well aware of the fact that we had a mask shortage. Why did we have a mask shortage? Because we didn't prepare, because the Trump administration had actually cut back on all of the steps that we would take for a global pandemic possibility. Nobody knew that. Nobody knew a pandemic was coming. Other than the last three presidents. Yeah, other than the last three presidents. That's right. No way we could have foreseen this. And so, yeah, anyway, the upshot of all of it is, yes, that is that was the best available science at the time. Now, look, Dr. Fauci was trying to also prevent a run on that because you remember that in New York City, frontline responders were wearing garbage bags to protect themselves as personal protective equipment, right? And so, you know, it, he said that. He said, look, I was... I was putting my thumb on the scale. This is what the science said, and I was trying to prevent people from running out and getting masks that were so desperately needed by the most at-risk people in our society, who are the frontline medical workers. But it's not some crazy lying conspiracy. But how much time did I just take to give that explanation? Right? A solid three or four minutes there. It's so much easier for Laura Ingram to say, "Well, what did Fauci know? Why did he change his mind?" I'm just asking questions. And in, in one sentence there, I probably just muddied the waters in the minds of all of our listeners. Well, now, let me back up the point. Unfortunately, conspiracies are easier to believe than the reality that we don't know everything. Right? I mean, conspiracies are easy to believe. Ah, Fauci knew all of this and just didn't tell us. He was doing it for, although I must admit, I never fully understood what they think his motivation Fauci did it for some nefarious reason, purposely misleading us, purposely hiding facts, and so on. It's easier to believe it, I guess, than the truth, which takes, instead of one sentence, takes three. And that's sadly the world we're living in. It's the world we're living in. Well, connected to one more thought, one more recent show that I did, on Beyond Politics, we had, I would say he's the country's leading expert on analyzing UFO videos. And we actually did it both as a video. You can find it on YouTube if you search for Beyond Politics, or, or for, and we did it as a podcast. And we looked at the, the videos that the Department of Defense have re- released uh, on you know UFO sightings, and we broke them down, and we looked at them. And at the end of the show, we talked a little bit about the fact that what possibly this guy's name is Nick West is that what he does kind of a bump. And it's the same thing. If you ever see a magic show, a really good magic show, if you actually get the explanation of how it was done, you kind of feel bummed out. Try it for yourself. 
go go YouTube something, go go Google it, you feel bummed out because the magical explanation, the idea that there's something out there that might be a little bit magical, a little bit unexplained, it's more fun. (laughs) You know, it's more exciting. And and giving facts is is dry and dull and it's kind of a bummer. And it's just one of the sad political dynamics in our country. The Democrats are the party of being a bummer. And I don't know how to break out of that. I honestly don't. I
Well, that's going to do it for that show that I recorded with Howard Monroe on the Watchdog Radio Network out of West Virginia. Making these kinds of appearances, I've really learned a lot about some of the political similarities between West Virginia, New Hampshire, and frankly, the rest of the country. So I hope everyone's enjoyed hearing some of that discussion. And as always, please subscribe to Beyond Politics on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or really wherever you get your podcasts. We also totally appreciate your ratings and reviews. They really do help us out. See you next week.